0: The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: Welcome back. Welcome to the new year. We start again in Acts. We're looking at... Uh, Tonight, uh, we're going to get a sampling of John Calvin's uh, work in the commentaries we've been looking at in the Institutes, and so I want to give you a sense of the kind of writing he did in commentaries, too. Well, let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, the grace that you show us every day. We thank you for the way that you love us and that you have um, overlooked or covered our sins in Jesus, and you have not dealt with us as our sins deserve, but rather have loved us, O Lord, with an everlasting love. I thank you, O Lord, for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for the invitation that we have in Hebrews 4, that we should come near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So I ask, O Lord, that you'd be with us tonight. I pray that you would, Lord, banish uh, distracting thoughts from our minds now. I pray that you would push out the concerns and the cares of the day I pray that we'd be able to focus entirely on the Scripture and uh, specifically on the book of Romans. I pray that the insights that you gave John Calvin 500 plus years ago, O Lord, would um, be still uh, powerful for us today. I pray, O Lord, that you would teach us, teach us your ways, teach us what what you did for us in Jesus. I pray that you would give us a comforted mind and heart that we would be able to lay any anxieties and fears we have at your at your feet and so i pray that you would guide me now as a teacher and all of us as we think about the scripture in jesus name amen so i guess tonight i'm going to catch you by trickery the real deal is not going to be john calvin tonight it's going to be the book of romans okay but what we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of romans through calvin's commentaries and so I don't really care that much what you think about John Calvin. I care an awful lot what you think about the Apostle Paul's book to the Romans. Fair enough? Um, But I think you're going to find in the comments that Calvin wrote and what he uh, gave us uh, that he did an excellent job of explaining these verses. So, you know, there are a lot of different ways I could have come at at this. We've been looking at at the Institutes. Uh, and the Institutes' work of systematic theology, the uh, the big, grand, overarching themes of Scripture. Um, but Calvin also did constant work in the commentaries. And if you open up um, in the handout, you can see a listing of the books of the Bible that Calvin wrote commentaries to. I mean, think about that. Uh, he wrote commentaries on Genesis, and then a harmony of the law, which is basically Leviticus, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, you know, four volumes of that, and then Joshua, and then uh, all the Psalms, all 150 of them. Um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, uh, Ezekiel. He was lecturing through Ezekiel when he took sick and died. So uh, they didn't finish. He didn't finish Ezekiel, but they published uh, posthumously. The uh, first 20 chapters. And then uh book of Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Mike, and Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the rest of the Old Testament, basically. Then he gave us the harmony of the Gospels. He saw, obviously, a clear uh, similarity between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so instead of going over the same thing again and again, he harmonized them and would you know, jump from Matthew to Mark or Luke as need be and went through in that way. A little bit hard to use as a result, but still outstanding comments. Uh, gave us the Gospel of John in two volumes, the Book of Acts in two volumes, Romans, First uh, Corinthians, Second Corinthians, and basically the rest of the New Testament minus Second um, uh, and Third John, and the Book of Revelation. Now, what happened there? You know. Uh, I find it fascinating. I think maybe if he had had time, he would have written on it, but he uh, jumped out of order and went into the Old Testament, so it wasn't like he forgot it existed. It was a, per, a choice of his not to write a commentary on at least at that point. it was so clear. It was so clear and obvious. <laughs> what did we need his comments for? So that's exactly right. Yes. Okay, well, I second and third, John. I don't know about that. I, I, I just think we need to realize... I mean this is this is these are just as commentaries I mean you've got five different editions of the institutes that are keep they keep growing the final edition of the institutes is five times longer than the first edition so he's not just you know he's not a lazy man let's put it that way so it's a bit ironic for we who have written no books okay to wonder why he didn't write a commentary in 2nd 3rd John which I feel he could have knocked off in in an afternoon so I don't I don't think there was anything necessarily willful or malicious he just didn't get to it you know we don't have much time on earth he used his time incredibly well the Baker edition 22 volumes of commentaries uh, add up to 22,224 pages Can you imagine just writing 22,000? Imagine reading it. I mean, it's an achievement just if you would just read it all. Um, But this was part of his intentional uh, kind of life project. And I've mentioned it before, but I had Flynn do some artwork here. There's Flynn's forest on the left. And we've got my tree on the right. And so you have a constant movement back and forth. The forest is the big picture. The Institute's, you know, the bird's eye view of these grand overarching themes. God, the creator. God the Redeemer, how the grace of God comes to us in Christ, the doctrine of the church, these big picture items. He's doing this and he's working on it all the time. Like I said, five different editions of the Institutes. And I think he would have kept going if he had been given more time. It would have gotten bigger and more detailed and all that. So he's, you know, he's got this and he looked at the Institutes. The key, The thing with the Institutes, it was key to understanding the Scriptures. That's why he gave it. He said he wanted the Institutes to help people interpret the Bible. All right, meanwhile, you've got his... His, you know, for the forest, which is the detail, looking at details. And that's his commentary's work. Uh, so he's zeroing in on verse after verse after verse of the Bible, looking at details and, and interpreting them in light of the whole. And so round and round we go in a big circle. And I've personally never forgotten that. I, I've mentioned this before. This is what I seek to do in preaching. Uh, you know, even this past week, I was talking about the four different layers of context in Hebrews 3. Remember? how, you know, one of the layers is us as 21st century readers of Hebrews 3. Then you've got the layer of the first century, um, you know, readers of the book of Hebrews. Then you've got the layer of of, uh, David who wrote Psalm 95 today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And then you've got... You know, the layer of the the Jews in the time of Moses, four different things. But I'm giving you that because I want you to situate the book of Hebrews in redemptive history and see the, the, the big picture, the context there. So there's historical setting and there's also theological setting. I don't want to miss theological issues as well. So I just think it's just great methodology uh, by this incredible hard worker. But what I wanted to do tonight is just give you a sense of the kinds of things he wrote in his commentaries. And, uh, and they're still helpful today, years later, um, centuries later. It's really quite remarkable. He wrote something very famous in his uh, letter of dedication, uh, written, written to a man named Simon Grinaeus. And this is a well-known statement from those that study uh, Calvin's approach to Scripture. And this is what he wrote to his friend, Simon. Uh, he said, I remember that when three years ago we had a friendly converse as to the best mode of expounding Scripture, the plan which especially pleased you, seemed also to me the most entitled to approbation. We both thought that the chief excellency of an expounder consists in lucid brevity. And indeed, since it is almost his only work to lay open the mind of the writer to whom, uh, whom he undertakes to explain, the degree in which he leads away his readers from it, in that degree he goes astray from his purpose and in a manner wanders from his own boundaries. So basically what we're looking at is lucid Brevity. Lucid means clear, seeking clarity. When you read the commentary, you should gain clarity. It shouldn't make it more complex. It should make it clearer. So we're looking for lucid writing, a clear writing style. Lucid and then anybody know what brevity means? (laughs) Yeah, keep it short. And, And you're like, all right, you know, pastors are not known for brevity. All right. I'm constantly ashamed when I look at the Sermon on the Mount and realize that it's significantly shorter than any sermon I've ever preached in my life. And uh, Jesus just did better with fewer words than I will ever do. Um, But uh, if you look at Calvin's commentaries, and I didn't bring any of them up here, but his commentaries are strikingly brief. Um, A commentary, an average kind of scholarly commentary on the book of Romans... Would be 13 or 1400 pages. It would be thick like that with multiple footnotes, extended bibliographies. And those things can be helpful to a point. Calvin's commentaries are much briefer. They're shorter. They don't interact with as many other scholars or, or thinkers. And they really just stick to the point. His goal always, and this is the next point, is to lay open the mind of the writer. He's seeking to get at what Paul was thinking about. What did Paul mean when he wrote this or that? That's what he's seeking at. Or we could also argue that, you know, the author of Scripture, the true author of Scripture is God. So Calvin wasn't, wasn't averse to using that kind of language. What did the Holy Spirit mean when he said this or what God meant when he said that? So he would mention Paul or the Holy Spirit somewhat interchangeably in that regard. And we understand that as Christians, don't we? Because whatever it is that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God is saying through him. But in any case, the goal of a good a good uh, expository preacher, a good commentator in Scripture, is to lay open the mind of the author, the original intention of what Paul intended, what God intended, and so that's what he was seeking to do. So now, what I propose to do with our time tonight is I went through the book of Romans. All I got through, uh, you know, when I got to ten pages, was five chapters of Romans. Um, And we could have kept going. I, you know, there's some other topics on the on the very last page. but I didn't have the time, and we won't have the time tonight. But my methodology is just I wanted to go through some of the key verses in, in Romans and see what Paul said about them. But again, my goal tonight is just to understand Romans. I mean, that would be that would be John Calvin's goal, too. I mean, his goal in the commentaries was to help you be clear about what Paul meant in this verse or that verse of Romans. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. And let's start with Romans 1.16, uh, which I quote frequently. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of of everyone, uh, who believes first for the Jew and also, uh, for the Greek or the, for the Gentile Calvin wrote this, if in the first place, the power of God ought to be extolled by us, that power shines forth in the gospel. If again, the goodness of God deserves to be sought and loved by us, the gospel is a display of his goodness. It ought then to be reverenced and honored since veneration is due to God's power. And as it avails to our salvation, it ought to be loved by us. But observe how much Paul ascribes to the ministry of the word when he testifies that God thereby puts forth his power to save. For he speaks not here of any secret revelation, but of vocal preaching. It hence follows that those, as it were, willfully despise the power of God and drive away from them his delivering hand who withdraw themselves from the hearing of the word. At the same time, as he works not effectually in all, but only where the spirit, the inward teacher, illuminates the heart, he adds, to everyone who believeth. The gospel is indeed offered to all for their salvation, but the power of it appears not everywhere, and that uh, it is the savor of death to the ungodly does not proceed from what it is, but from their own wickedness. By setting forth but one salvation, he cuts off every other trust. When men withdraw themselves from this one salvation, they find in the gospel a sure proof of their own ruin. Since then, the gospel invites all to partake of salvation without any difference. It is rightly called the doctrine of salvation. For Christ is there offered, whose peculiar office it is to save that which was lost. And those who refuse to be saved by them shall find him a judge. But everywhere in Scripture, the word salvation is simply said in opposition to the word destruction. And here we must observe, when it is mentioned, what the subject of the discourse is. Since then, the gospel delivers from ruin and the curse of endless death. Its salvation is eternal life. So that's what he writes. What he's getting at here is Paul's statement the uh, gospel is a display of the power of God, or it is the power of God. So therefore, if we honor the power of God, we should honor the gospel, because the gospel, the vehicle, by which the power of God comes across to us. We should hold the gospel in honor as we hold God in honor. And so he says, anybody then who despises the ministry of the word despises the power of God. If you turn your back on the word, you're turning your back on the power of God for salvation. So he puts it in a very high level, the ministry of the word, the proclamation. He even calls it the preaching, the open preaching, the vocal preaching of the word. And this is the way, when you think of, you know, how did Calvin do evangelism? I mean, the first thing you're going to think of is preaching. That's what he did. I mean, this guy preached every single day, almost every day. And so, you know, you would think, well, what's his evangelism? Well, you'd come and listen to him preach. Uh, I'm not saying he wasn't a personal evangelist, but I'm saying when he thought of the gospel, he thought of this kind of ministry, the vocal proclamation of the word of God, and it has power, tremendous power. He also noted that the gospel doesn't work equally in everybody. I mean, not everybody receives the benefits of the gospel. You know? Some people hear it and it has no impact on them at all. And Calvin says it's not because there's anything wrong with the gospel. There's nothing defective in the gospel. The gospel isn't polluted or defiled for those people. It is the savor of death for those that are perishing. But it's not because there's anything in and of itself. It's because of what they bring to it. Because of their own wickedness. That's what he's saying. But there's nothing wrong with the gospel. The gospel fine. The word of God is, is sufficient and perfect and fine. The question is, what's going on in our own hearts? And does God regenerate us? Does God take out that heart of stone and give us the heart of flesh so that the gospel is for us the power of God for salvation those are powerful statements aren't they you know this isn't everything you said about Romans 116 but it's almost everything you know I had to edit this or else it would be going would be going on and on in you know, single verses but I'm just telling you that's really brief you know a few more paragraphs and that's about it that's all I cut out so very very clear and sharp and to the point secondly the next verse Romans 117. For in it, or in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Again, another incredibly important statement. Uh, Romans 1.17, talking about how it is that the gospel saves us by giving us uh, righteousness. Calvin writes this. This is an explanation and a confirmation of the preceding clause, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. In other words, how is the gospel of God? Power unto salvation. He's explaining for if we seek salvation, that is life with God, righteousness must first be sought by which being reconciled to him. We may through him be uh, through him be propitious to us, uh, obtain that life which consists only in his favor. For in order to be loved by God, we must first become righteous since he regards unrighteousness with hatred. He therefore intimates that we cannot obtain salvation otherwise than from the gospel. Since nowhere else does God reveal to us his righteousness, which alone delivers us from perdition. Now, this righteousness, which is the groundwork of our salvation, is revealed in the gospel. Hence, the gospel is said to be the power of God unto salvation. Thus, he reasons from the cause to the effect. So this is a very strong statement that he makes. You must be righteous for God to regard you with favor. You think, well, that makes sense, doesn't it? If I am unrighteous, God will despise me. That's absolutely true. God despises wickedness. He despises unrighteousness. And we are naturally wicked and we are naturally unrighteous. So God would naturally despise us. So we must have the gospel. That's the point he's making here. You have no other way of becoming righteous in God's sight. There is no other way. That's what these verses are saying. The gospel is the power, the way by which unrighteous people are made righteous in the sight of God. And that's a, you know, a very strong statement. You know, it's funny. As you read these things, it's like, what well, it all makes sense. Yeah, well, you weren't thinking it before you read Calvin. <laughs> but what's he doing? He's just saying obvious things. Not really. He's just doing good teaching. And what he's saying is it's very plain that God, whose eyes are too pure to look on evil, cannot look on us apart from Christ. But in Christ, he views us as righteous. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, And so, very plainly, in the gospel, we become righteous. We're going to talk more about that later on this evening, but it's something we can never talk too much about. In the gospel, we become righteous. And then there's this expression, from faith to faith. I went away from the NIV here in the verse I gave you on page 3 because, um, what does it say in the NIV? I forget. Let's see, hang on. Uh, For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed... From faith. It's not from faith to faith. I can't remember. Why can't I remember NIV? That's how one version drives out another. Uh, faith from beginning to end. Faith from beginning to end. Thank you. That's, that's how the NIV does interpretation for us. All right. The Greek is literally from faith to faith. That's literally what it is. And so that's what Calvin's commenting on. Instead of the expression he used before to everyone who believes, he says now from us, <clears throat> excuse me, from faith. For righteousness is offered by the gospel and is received by faith. Then he adds to faith. Uh, For as our faith makes progress and as it advances in knowledge, so the righteousness of God increases in us at the same time. And the possession of it is in a manner confirmed. When at first we taste the gospel, we indeed see God's smiling countenance toward, uh, turn toward us. But at a distance. The more the knowledge of true religion grows in us by coming, as it were, nearer, we behold God's favor more clearly and more familiarly. What some think uh, that there is here an implied comparison between the Old and New Testament from faith to faith, etc., is more refined than well-founded. For Paul does not here compare the fathers who lived under the law with us, but points out the daily progress that is made by every one of the faithful. So in other words, from faith to faith, he's talking about sanctification. You're initially justified by faith. Then you make progress by faith. And he likens it to an ever clearer vision or view of God. You're getting closer and closer to God. You're seeing God more and more plainly by faith. Initially, your first take of the gospel, you didn't see God so clearly, just a little bit. But uh, through a glass darkly, you know, so it says. And then as you make progress, you see God more and more plainly, more and more clearly from faith to faith. Therefore, I say to you, the issue of our sanctification is development of our faith. We're justified by faith. We're sanctified by faith, too. What is faith? It's that internal vision of God, right? The vision of invisible things, of God on his throne, of Jesus on the cross, of the empty tomb. These things you can only see by faith. Of judgment day, right? Of heaven and hell. These things become more and more vivid of righteousness, purity, and holiness. God is light, and in Him there's no darkness at all. These things come clear in your mind, especially at the moment of temptation. So the issue of sanctification is get stronger in your faith. Romans 1.17 is teaching that, from faith to faith. And how then do we get stronger in our faith? How does that happen? Be in the Word. Give your faith a good meal, a nourishing meal. Read some Scripture. Feed, feed, feed on the Word of God. And so that's how how you grow in your salvation from faith to faith. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, Universality of sin. Uh, Let's go to Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth uh, by their wickedness. All right. Calvin writes this. The word wrath, according to the usage of scripture, speaking after the manner of man means the vengeance of God. For God in punishing has, according to our notion, the appearance of one in wrath. It imports, therefore, no such emotion in God, but only has a reference to the perception and feeling of the sinner who is punished. Then he says that it is revealed from heaven. Though the expression from heaven is taken by some in the sense of an adjective, as though he had said the wrath of the heavenly or the celestial God. Yet I think it's more emphatical. When as taken, uh, taken as having this import, wheresoever a man may look around him, he'll find no salvation for the wrath of God is poured out on the whole world to the full extent of heaven. So in other words, God's wrath is being revealed from his heavenly throne and there's nowhere to escape. That's what Calvin's saying. We're going to go to hide. God is in heaven. We're on earth. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and the people are like grasshoppers. If God is against you, who could be for you? And so that's what verse 18 is saying. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And it's a terrifying thing. The vengeance, the wrath of God. That's what he's talking about there. Then in Romans 1, the idolatry of men. Romans 1, 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who's forever praised. Amen. I chose this verse just because I think it's one of the most significant verses in the Bible. This is the essence of sin. This exchange is the essence of our wandering away from God. This is what we do. We exchange God for created things. We worship and serve created things rather than the creator. Salvation then is the deliverance from the penalty and the practice and the presence of that idolatry. So that God is everything to us. And we are not worshiping and serving created things anymore, but we're worshiping and serving only the creator. Calvin wrote this: When the truth of God is turned to a lie, His glory is obliterated. It is then but just that they should be 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 sprinkled with every kind of infamy, who strive to take away from God His honor and also to reproach His name. It also says and worshipped and served etc. That I might include two words in one, I have given this rendering. He points out especially the sin of idolatry for religious honor cannot be given to a creature without taking it away in a disgraceful and sacrilegious manner from God. And vain is the excuse that images are worshipped on God's account since God acknowledges no such worship nor regards it as acceptable. And the true God is not then worshipped at all, but a fictitious God whom the flesh has devised for itself. What is added? quote, who is blessed forever, end quote, I explain as having been said for the purpose of exposing idolaters to an even greater reproach. And in this way, he is the one whom they ought alone to have worshiped and and honored and from whom it was not right to take away anything. No, not even the least. So he's saying that's what Paul's doing. He's intensifying when he says who is worshiped and served forever. That shows how bad it is that these idolaters aren't worshiping the true God. So what he's saying here, he's dealing with idolatry and he does it very succinctly and quickly. All right. It has to do with something you craft or something you make, you know, and you're taking God's honor away and giving it to this created thing. And he's saying, it's impossible that you can do that and say, I'm worshiping God. The Jews tried to do that, by the way, didn't they? Remember when they made that golden calf? What did they say? Hear your gods, O Israel, who led you out of Egypt. So fall down and worship the gods who led you out of Egypt. You know, you remember, was was God worshipped at that point? Calvin's saying God didn't receive any worship from that. They were worshipping what Calvin called a fictitious God, a God of their own imagination. And so, you know, these kinds of thoughts, you know, I can't think of a God who would, you know, pour out wrath, let's say, on a being. On a being. Let's say, I, I can't imagine a God who would, who would pour out wrath on created beings forever and ever. Well, but that's the God of the Bible. So when you say, I can't imagine a God like that, then you're making up a God of your own imagination. That's the essence of idolatry. You're worshiping a fictitious God. And then then to say, I'm worshiping the true God in my own way. No, you're not. You can't do that. So the essence of idolatry ultimately is to strip away from God the glory that he really deserves. The one who is blessed forever. How horrible is that to take from God the glory that he deserves? Again, very efficient and clear writing on Calvin's part. Then on the issue of universality of sin, the next point, you know, Paul just unfolded. By the way, I didn't give you this, but Calvin gives a three-page summary of the whole argument of the book of Romans. That's pretty good when you think about it. Be able to take and write everything in Romans, all 16 chapters down in about three pages unfolding chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. If you can do that, you understand Romans. If you can say what's going on in Romans 1, what's happening in Romans 2, what's happening in Romans 3, 4, 5, 6, you get the book. And Calvin was able to do that in about three pages. Beautiful. I didn't give it to you because we spent our whole time reading that. But, um, you know, very, very efficient. That's what he's doing. So what is the Apostle Paul doing? In Romans 1, 2, and 3, he's proving that there is no one righteous. Not even one. The universality of sin, that's what he's getting at. And so in verses 10 through 18 of chapter 3, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Notice, by the way, all of these are in like little quotation marks. They're all Old Testament quotes is what they are. The Apostle Paul is just picking from the Psalms in different places, you know, testimonies of universality of sin. That's what Paul's doing. What does Calvin say? And that these testimonies may not seem to anyone to have been unfitly produced. Let us consider each of them in connection with the passages from which they have been taken. David says in Psalm 14, verse 1, That there was such perverseness in men that God, when looking on them all in their different conditions, could not find a righteous man. No, not one. It then follows that this evil pervaded mankind universally for nothing is hid from the sight of God. He speaks indeed at the end of the psalm of the redemption of Israel. But we shall presently show how men become holy and how far they are exempt from this condition. In the other psalms, he speaks of the treachery of his enemies while he was exhibiting in himself and in his descendants a type of the kingdom of Christ. Hence, we have in his adversaries the representatives of all those who, being alienated from Christ, are not led by his spirit. Isaiah expressly mentions Israel, and therefore his charge applies with still greater force against the Gentiles. What then? There is no doubt but that the character of men is described in these words. In order that we may see what man is when left to himself... For scripture testifies that all men are in this state who are not regenerated by the grace of God. The condition of the saints would be nothing better were not this depravity corrected in them. And that they may still remember that they differ nothing from others by nature. They do find in the relics of their flesh, by which they are always encompassed, the seeds of those evils which would constantly produce fruit, were they not prevented by being mortified. And for this mortification, they are indebted to God's mercy, not to their own nature. We may add that though all the vices here enumerated are not found conspicuously in every individual, yet they may be justly and truly ascribed to human nature. All right, what what Calvin is doing is he's describing the doctrine of so-called total depravity. And that's a good thing because these are the best verses in the Bible on total depravity. And what is total depravity? The doctrine that every single solitary human being is to the core of their being corrupt and depraved apart from God's grace. That's what these verses are teaching. What does Calvin do? He says, well, first of all, let's see that the Apostle Paul did his work well. He didn't rip these verses out of context. So he does a little context work in Psalms. Goes back to Psalm 14. Looks over at Isaiah. He says, you know, this is actually what these... Passages really are teaching. So here he's vindicating the Apostle Paul, saying he did good work. I'm sure the Apostle Paul was relieved that Calvin approved of his scholarship. Uh, But at any rate, he's saying, look, this is what these passages indeed are teaching, the universality of sin. But Calvin doesn't stop there. It's not out there. It's in here, too. It's in the redeemed. We're no different than them. That's what Calvin's saying. There's not a, a bit of difference between us, the redeemed, and, the, and the, those that are not redeemed. We are every bit as depraved as, as they are. And we would prove it if it weren't for the grace of God. And even under the grace of God, justified by faith and all that, we still have seeds, depraved seeds that would break forth in fruit through our flesh. If it weren't for the mortification that is coming moment by moment. And even that we can't take credit for mortification is something being done by God to us by his grace. Well, that's all very humbling. (laughs) We're all like this. This is us. Romans three. I thought that's all them. You know, all the sinners out there. I'm so glad there's a chapter describing all those wicked sinners out there. Friends, this is describing us. We're part of the human race. And that's what Calvin gets with. Even though not everybody has these attributes equally the same, yet they are rooted in human nature and we're all human. And so there's a solidarity or a unity in the human race on sinfulness. Now, again, you can see, and we've talked about this in the Institutes, how Calvin highlights what really humbles us. Because it's very clear to Calvin that the gospel is intended to humble us while it's also intended to save us. And so that part of our salvation is to be genuinely humbled. So I would suggest that meditating on Romans 3 is good for your pride. All right, It's good to humble you. You look over these things and say, this is who I was apart from Christ. And the fact that I can use the past tense and say, this is who I was, it's only by the grace of God. If I'm righteous at all now, it's because Jesus has worked this in me. So I I think that's wonderful. An arrogant Christian really should be an oxymoron, friends really should be. I mean, what, how could we be arrogant? We've been saved from this. And when we're sharing the gospel with somebody who's swimming in this ocean, have mercy, have pity. Realize that's who you were. And the grace of God has rescued you out of that. So those are the things that Calvin's saying. Some of the things I'm saying too, only I haven't written them down yet. Anyway, <clears throat> the glowing heart of the gospel. Could somebody, in order to save my, my voice, just read these verses from Romans 3, 21 through 25? Thank you.
0: Righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus by Christ Jesus. God presented him a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood.
1: Now, when I preach through Romans, I call this the glowing center of the gospel. These are, you know, I would say the most important verses in the book of Romans and perhaps in the Bible. This is how sinners like us get saved. This is the glowing center of the gospel. Okay. But now, now that Jesus has come, now a righteousness from God has been revealed. Apart from the law, it's been made known. To which the law and the prophets testify. What that means is this isn't contrary to the old covenant. Can read about it in the book of isaiah it's right there isaiah 53 describes christ and and so there are others as well this righteousness from god comes through faith in jesus christ so an imputed righteousness comes simply through faith in christ to all who believe there's no difference this is the remedy all of sin and fall short of the glori- glory of god we've talked about that universality of depra- depravity and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by christ jesus God presented him better as a propitiation through faith in his blood. All right, Calvin, first of all, talking about justification, says this. When, therefore, we discuss this subject, we ought to proceed in this way. First, the question respecting our justification is to be referred not to the judgment of men, but to the judgment of God, before whom nothing is counted righteous, but perfect and absolute obedience to the law. In other words, if you want to be seen to be righteous by God, you have to be perfect according to his law. Which appears clear from its promises and threatenings. If no one is found who has attained to such a perfect measure of holiness, it follows that all are in themselves destitute of righteousness. So he's talking about how you should proceed in thinking about justification. Start there. To be justified, you have to be. Perfectly righteous in God's sight and no one is. Start there. Secondly, it is necessary that Christ should come to our aid who being alone just can render us just by transferring to us his own righteousness. Do you realize how hot that topic is these days? The idea of a transfer of righteousness. Theologians today are openly debating this right now. And they're going to come along at some point and some person's going to say, did Calvin really believe in imputation? Well, did he believe in a transfer of righteousness from Jesus' account to ours? Do you see the word transfer there? Yes. Can righteousness be transferred from one to another? I've said it before, I'll say it again. If it can't, we're all going to hell. Because you have to be perfectly right. He's right. You have to be perfectly righteous in God's sight to be in his presence. Or else he will despise you. He hates wickedness. He hates unrighteousness. You're like, well, it's kind of like all all or nothing. Yes. (laughs) How about if I'm 90% righteous? Well, then you're 10% unrighteous. You know, that means you're wicked. I mean, you know how it works. This is God. His eyes are perfect. And so there is a transfer of righteousness from Christ. You see now. Sorry, you now see how the righteousness of faith is the righteousness of Christ. When therefore we are justified, the efficient cause is the mercy of God. The meritorious is Christ. The instrumental is the word in connection with faith. So in other words, he's talking about three causes. First and foremost, it's God the father who's having mercy on you. Secondly, the cause is Christ who shed his blood. The third cause is the word that was preached to you that you heard. Those are the three levels of cause that he's talking about here. And it's all true. All right. Hence, faith is said to justify because it is the instrument by which we receive Christ in whom righteousness is conveyed to us. Having been made partakers of Christ, we ourselves are not only just, but our works are also counted just before God. And for this reason, because whatever imperfections there may be in them are obliterated by the blood of Christ. The promises which are conditional are also by the same grace fulfilled to us. For God rewards our works as perfect inasmuch as their defects are covered by free pardon. So it's amazing. Faith justifies because faith is the means by which the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. Now before, I've, and I've said many times before that, that for me an analogy, a helpful analogy is faith is the eyesight of the soul. It takes in the light that God gives. Okay. Well, let's say in this case, light is perfect righteousness coming from Jesus. That'd be all right, wouldn't it? God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. So the idea of light is the idea of holiness, purity, right? The idea of darkness is the idea of wickedness, unrighteousness, that kind of thing. Well, isn't it beautiful then? If faith is the eyesight of the soul, Jesus said, if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. Isn't that beautiful? So if your spiritual eye is good, namely, if you have faith, your whole being will be filled with the light of Jesus and you'll be seen to be perfectly light in God. It's powerful, isn't it? Nobody could ever concoct or put the scripture together. That was from the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. The the word of God is a united message uh, to us. We are light because we have received light from Jesus. And we take it in by faith, by the eyesight of the soul. And if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. All right. Being justified freely, etc., it says in these verses. A participle is here put for a verb according to the usage of the Greek language. The meaning is that since there remains nothing for men as to themselves but to perish, being smitten by the just judgment of God, they are to be justified freely through his mercy. For Christ comes to the aid of this misery and communicates himself to believers so that they find in him alone all those things in which they are wanting. There is perhaps no passage in the whole scripture which illustrates in a more striking manner the efficacy of his righteousness for it shows that God's mercy is the efficient cause that Christ with his blood is the meritorious cause and that the formal or instrumental cause is faith in the word and that moreover the final cause is the glory of the divine justice and goodness with regard to the efficient cause. He says that we are justified freely and further by his grace He thus repeats the word to show that the whole thing is from God and nothing from us. It might have been enough to oppose grace to merits, but lest we should imagine a half kind of grace. He uh, affirms more strongly what he means by a repetition and claims for God's mercy alone, the whole glory of righteousness. So it says freely by his grace. Paul said that. Now, what what Calvin's doing is commenting on this redundancy freely by his grace is redundant. So he's saying, we just have a hard time giving up on our works, don't we? We have a hard time. It's like, well, at least I did this. At least I did that. At least you sinned is what you did. Freely by his grace means that it was all of God. That's what Calvin's saying. It's completely given you by God and nothing in and of yourselves. That's what Calvin's getting at. So redundancy here, and he's talking about that. Secondly, we have the concept of propitiation in these great verses there seems to be an allusion to the word hilasterion is that word in the Greek. As I have said, to the ancient propitiatory. So that's an old Greek word that had to do with the gods and goddesses being propitiated or having their wrath averted by some sacrifice being offered. It's an old Greek word. Calvin's picking up on that, saying, you know, it seems like Paul picked up on this old Greek word and is using this old concept of propitiation all right for he teaches us that the same thing was really exhibited in Christ which had been previously typified as however the other view cannot be disproved should any prefer it i shall not undertake to decide the question what paul especially meant here is no doubt evident from his words and it was this that god without having regard to christ is always angry at us boy that's striking isn't it <laughs> can that really be true that God's just really, really angry all the time at people who are outside of Christ? Is that true? Well, the answer is yes, it's true. What's that? Yeah, John 3.36. John 3.36. Whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever does not believe shall not see life for God's wrath remains on him. What does remains mean? Well, it was there before and it's still there. <laughs> they are under the wrath of God all the time. What a dreadful way to live. What a dreadful way to live. And it's interesting, if you look back at Romans 1, one of the key ways that God displays his wrath is by giving people over to sin and not saving them from it. Giving them into the clutches, the the jailhouse of sin, and they can't get out. That's how they're under the wrath of God. They become even more addicted. They become even more enslaved. They go even more in the same direction toward atheism and unbelief and wickedness and all that. That's how the wrath of God is on them. He's not saving them. He's letting them have what they want. And that accordingly is, is wrath, that's wrath. And so God is angry. I mean this reminds me of Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, that, that God is always angry with the wicked at every moment. and he's the only one that can keep them out of hell. And he's angry at them. It's an amazing sermon, really, if you look at it, but the Calvin's teaching the same thing. all right. And he's getting right at the core of propitiation. propitiation means nothing if God has no wrath. propitiation's all about wrath. It's about getting rid of wrath. It's about the lightning rod. It's about the taking away safely of the wrath of God from you so that you don't feel wrath. And so if God, the God of the Bible, is not a wrathful God, then you don't need a propitiation, but you do because God is angry. All right, so God, without having regard to Christ, is always angry with us and that we are reconciled to him when we are accepted through his righteousness. God does not indeed hate us In his own workmanship, that is, as we are formed men. But he hates our uncleanness, which has extinguished the light of his image. When the washing of Christ cleanses this away, he then loves and embraces us as his own pure workmanship. So, in other words, he doesn't hate us because we're human, he hates us because we're sinful. When the sin is cleansed through the blood of Christ, he loves us as his workmanship. That's what Calvin's saying here. So that's propitiation. God's wrath is averted through the death of Christ. Then uh, justification by faith is, is continually proved here in Romans 3 and 4. First Romans 3, 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. This is always an interesting verse to me because this is the verse that Luther mistranslated in his zeal for reformation truth. Okay, he stuck in the German word allein Here, where it says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. He shouldn't have done that. That was bad. Okay. The word alone echoes through all the teachings of the Bible. You don't really have to add a word to Romans 3.28. Calvin doesn't do that here, but he makes it very plain that we're justified by faith alone. He now draws the main proposition as one that is incontrovertible. And adds an explanation, justification by faith is indeed made very clear, while works are expressly uh, excluded. Thank you. Pray for my miraculous healing in the next 15 minutes. Uh, Hence, in nothing do our adversaries labor more in the present day than in attempts to blend faith with the merits of works. They indeed allow that man is justified by faith, but not by faith alone. Yea, they place the efficacy of justification in love, though in words they ascribe it to faith. But Paul affirms in this passage that justification is so gratuitous that he makes it quite evident that it can by no means be associated with the merit of works. Why he names the works of the law I have already explained, and I have also proved that it is quite absurd to confine them to ceremonies. Frigid also is the gloss that works are to be taken for that which are outward and done without the spirit of Christ. On the contrary, the word law is added that means the same as though he called the meritorious for what is referred to the, is reward promised by law. What James said, and this is interesting, what James says is that man is not justified by faith alone, but also by works, does not at all militate against the preceding view. The reconciling of the two views depends chiefly on the drift of the argument pursued by James. Pause for a moment. What is he talking about here? James. Yeah, because what do we learn from the case of Abraham? We learned that Abraham was not justified by faith alone, but by works. What did Luther do with James? Said it's an epistle of straw, don't read it. Okay, that was Luther. I mean, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. I appreciate Luther's great courage at the Diet of Worms. That was the right thing to do to stand firm on justification. It's the wrong thing to do to disparage any part of the word of God. What Calvin does is he says, this is the word of God too. Let's try to understand it. Oh, I get it. James is using the word justify differently. How is he using the word justify differently? Well, Paul's using the word justify in terms of your standing before God. And do you appear or are you claimed to be righteous by God? James is talking about do you appear or claim to be righteous by human beings, a human audience? And the only way we can know somebody's justification at the human level is by their works. The fruit, by their fruit, you'll know them. I can't know someone's heart. I can only know by how they live. That's what he's getting at. So he goes uh, on from there. The drift of the argument pursued by James. For the question with him is not how men attain righteousness before God, but how they prove to others that they are justified. For his object was to confute hypocrites who vainly boasted that they had faith. <clears throat> gross then is the sophistry not to admit that the word to justify is taken in a different sense by James for that in which it is used by Paul. In other words, who's going to say that? The Roman Catholics, because they are going to deny justification by faith alone. They're going to say, you've got to have works. James teaches us that Calvin says the word justify are used differently. That's what he's getting at here. So he's refuting both Luther's disparagement of James, but also the Roman Catholics are teaching justification by works. The word faith is no doubt capable of various meanings. These two things must be taken to the account before a correct judgment can be formed on the point. We may learn from the context that James meant no more than that man is not made or proved to be just by a feigned or dead faith and that he must prove his righteousness by his works. Look at this. See on this subject my institutes. So that's it right over here, see? see. In other words, back and forth we go, round and round. In other words, I went through all this in the Institutes. And Calvin, one thing about Calvin is like I, he hates to write the same thing again. So frequently it's like, I already discussed all this, read my Institutes, moving on. You know, that's about what he does. Could somebody read Romans 4, 3 through 5 and I can drink this water and maybe it'll heal me. Go ahead. You know, I just tell you, I'm, I'm just in awe of the book of Romans. The more I study it, and we're doing this in men's Bible study, you never get done studying this book. You know, to the man who does not work, but trusts. You know, it's, it's amazing because Paul's not afraid of an apparent overstatement. In, in effect, you could take this out of context. and say, well, God, I guess God doesn't want us to do any works. No, but you need to set it in its context. But he's bold here to say, to the man who does not work, but trusts that man is imputed with righteousness. That's, that's the whole thing. But that's Paul. That's what he says. What does John Calvin say about this? He indeed takes it as granted that the righteousness of faith is the re- refuge and as it were the asylum of the sinner who is destitute of works. For if there be any righteousness by the law or by works, it must be in men themselves. But by faith they derive from another what is wanting in themselves. And hence the righteousness of faith is rightly called imputative the passage which is quoted is taken from genesis 15:6 in which the word believe is not to be confined to any particular expression but it refers to the whole covenant of salvation and the grace of adoption which abraham apprehended by faith there is indeed mentioned there the promise of a future seed but it was grounded on gratuitous adoption and it ought to be observed that salvation without the grace of god is not promised nor God's grace without salvation. And again, we are, that we are not called to the grace of God, nor to the hope of salvation without having righteousness offered to us. By the way, he makes an important point and it solves somewhat a troubling issue. Paul makes much in Romans 4 of Genesis fifteen six in the moment in which God spoke his promise to Abraham, or Abram at that point, so shall your offspring be. Remember how he said, like, I don't have any offspring. I have uh, Eliezer of Damascus as my heir. It's not looking good. Sarah continues to be barren. Um, Don't see it happening. Takes him out, look up at the stars, count them if you can, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and it was credited in his righteousness. What is the problem? Is that the moment that he received credited righteousness? If so, then did he not leave Ur of the Chaldeas by faith? Didn't it take faith to leave and go into the promised land to begin with? Hebrews 11 says it did that he was displaying faith when he left Ur of the Chaldees and went into the promised land. So what Calvin says is not that's not the moment of faith. It's Abram's whole disposition in the covenant. He's believing everything God's saying to him. And, and that's just more evidence of the fact that Abraham, as a believer, was accepting whatever God told him, whatever promises God made to him. You know, you shall, you shall have the land. He already believed that, you know. Um, you know i will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you i will curse back in genesis he believed that too he was just a believer and that's how he was justified so it's not so important that it was at the moment of the starry night that he was justified it's that it is how he was justified he was justified by faith that's what paul's getting at that's what calvin says i think it's a good answer because it leaves you into a, it leads you in a problem if if he was unjustified in chapter 14 and justified over in chapter 15, you have problems because what are you going to do with the, all the events of chapter 12 and 13 and all that? I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's building an altar and calling on the name of the Lord. He's, you know, uh, you know, going. He sends Lot down to Sodom, remember? And God speaks a promise to him. You know, this land is going to be yours and all that. And it's like, yeah, but I'm an unbeliever. Don't worry about it. We'll get to that in chapter 15. You know, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It's weird, actually. No, he was a believer then. He was a believer right through. But it's just more of the same. And that's why I want to say to you, it's from faith to faith. The believer is just believing whatever God says. You're just going to believe whatever God says. You may not have studied this or that book of the Bible. You're a new Christian. And you hadn't read the minor prophets yet. You hadn't read through Isaiah. It doesn't matter. When you get there, you'll believe it. Because you're a believer. You see what I'm getting at? And when you learn something new in a good sermon or whatever, you'll believe it because it's true. You're just a believer. Whatever God's saying, you're going to believe. And that's the way it was with Abram. It's just the way he was living. He believed God and it was credited in him as righteousness. I think it's a better way to understand things. Okay? And then finally, assurance of salvation, Romans chapter five. Somebody read this, Romans five, one and two. Top of page nine, anyone?
0: Therefore,
1: Great, great verses. Thank you. The apostle begins, says Calvin, to illustrate by the effects what he has hitherto said of the righteousness of faith. And hence, the whole of this chapter is taken up with amplifications, which are no less calculated to explain than to confirm. He had said before that faith is abolished if righteousness is sought by works. And in this case, perpetual inquietude would disturb miserable souls as they can find nothing substantial in themselves. But he teaches us now that they are rendered quiet and tranquil when we have obtained righteousness by faith. We have peace with God. By the way, we're about to enter in preaching in, in Hebrews 4. In, in the author, there's meditation on rest. You know, so I declared on oath of my anger they shall never enter my rest. What does it mean to enter the rest of God? And I'm going to bring in Romans 5.1. I I believe what Calvin said is, is true here. I wasn't thinking about Calvin, but he's saying it's true that when you come to faith in Christ, you enter into a peace and a quietness of soul and a tranquility of soul in your relationship with God. God is at peace with you, and you can be at peace in your relationship with God as well. That's what he's saying here. We have peace with God, and this is the peculiar fruit of the righteousness of faith. When anyone strives to seek tranquility of conscience by works... Which is the case with profane and ignorant men, he labors for it in vain, for either his heart is asleep through his disregard or forgetfulness of God's judgment, or else it is full of trembling and dread, until it reposes on Christ, who is alone our peace. Then peace means tranquility of conscience, which arises from this that it feels itself to be reconciled to God. See, he's qualifying what kind of peace we have. It's a peace of reconciliation. If you don't have the peace of reconciliation, you have an ignorant peace. You didn't know that God was at wrath with you and that that wrath is dealt with at the cross. So the peace of a Buddhist monk meditating is an ignorant peace. It's not a correct peace. There's a a certain kind of peace that's genuine peace. It's peace of reconciliation with God through faith in Christ. That's the peace that we have here. Other than that, it's it's falsehood, really. So... um, that peace, then peace means tranquility of conscience, which arises from this, that it feels itself to be reconciled to God. Uh, this the Pharisee has not, who swells with false confidence in his own works, nor the stupid sinner, who is not disquieted because he's inebriated with the sweetness of vices. So he's doing just fine. Why? Because he's drunk. <laughs> he's feeling no pain. Well, that's not the peace we have in mind here. Okay. Okay. For though neither of these seems to have a manifest disquietude as he who is smitten with a consciousness of sin, yet as they do not really approach the tribunal of God, they have no reconciliation with him. In other words, they never went to God to find out, am I okay with you? God isn't in their mind. They're not concerned about the true God of the Bible. And they're not worried about his tribunal, his judgment. They haven't gone to find out that actually he's at war with them. And so they really don't have a genuine peace because God is still at war with them. As we already discussed, he's still at wrath with them. All right. Um, So they did not approach approach the tribunal of God. They have no reconciliation with him. For insensibility of conscience is, as it were, a sort of retreating from God. Peace with God is opposed to the dead security of the flesh. And for this reason, because the first thing is that everyone should become awakened as to the account he must render of his life. And no one can stand boldly before God but he who relies on a gratuitous reconciliation for as long as he is God all must otherwise tremble and be confounded. And this is the strongest of proofs that our opponents do nothing but prate to no purpose when they ascribe righteousness to works for this conclusion of Paul is derived from the fact that miserable souls always tremble except they repose on the grace of Christ. So in other words, the only true genuine peace we can have is peace that deals with the fact that God is at war with us because of our sins, through His law. His law testifies against us that we're sinners. We, therefore, go to the cross of Christ, see through faith in Christ that God is no longer wrathful with us, but is at peace with us. We are accounted as righteous in God and in our conscience is at peace with Him. That's the peace of God in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, in the last minute or two, the doctrine of original sin. That's a lightweight doctrine. Amen. All right. Romans 5.12. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because because all all sinned. Not all have sinned now. That's different. It's true, but it's different. All sinned. Like one, one instance we sinned. What's Paul talking about in verse 12? When did we all... Sin. when Adam ate that fruit. That's when you sinned. You're like, whoa, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. That's not fair. What did I do? Now you're thinking like a Pelagian, right? What did I do? I wasn't there. It's not my fault that Adam ate that fruit. I mean, I've done some bad things, but that's my own thing. I don't think I should have to pay for Adam's sin. Okay. Well, should you get the credit for Jesus's righteousness? <laughs> That's the parallel. Please. Well, God ascribes Adam's sin to you in the same way that he ascribes Jesus' righteousness to you. It's just the way it is. You don't like that? You argue with Romans 5, 12 through 21 because that's what it's saying. It's an absolute parallel. The sin of Adam was was transferred or credited to your account because you're a human being. The righteousness of Jesus is transferred, credited to your account because you're union, united with him by faith. That's what he's getting at. All right, what is Calvin? Maybe Calvin got it wrong like the Pelagians. What do you think? No chance. Observe the order which he keeps here, for he says that sin preceded and that and that from sin death followed. There are indeed some who contend that we are so lost through Adam's sin as though we perished through no fault of our own, but only because he had sinned for us. But Paul distinctly affirms that sin extends to all who suffer its punishment. And this he afterwards more fully declares... When subsequently he assigns a reason why all the posterity of Adam are subjected to the dominion of death. And it is even this because we have all, he says, sinned. We have all sinned. But to sin in this case is to become corrupt and vicious for the natural depravity, which we bring from our mother's womb, though it brings forth, brings not forth immediately its own fruits is yet sin before God and deserves his vengeance. And this is that sin which they call original. For as Adam at his creation had received for us as well as for himself the gifts of God's favor, so by falling away from the Lord, he in himself corrupted, vitiated, depraved and ruined our nature. For having been divested of God's likeness, he could not have generated seed, but was like what was like himself. Hence, we have all sinned for we are all imbued with natural corruption and so are become sinful and wicked. Frivolous then was the gloss by which formerly the Pelagians endeavored to elude the words of Paul and held that sin descended by imitation from Adam to the whole human race. For Christ would, in this case, become only the exemplar and not the cause of righteousness. That's huge. In other words, what the Pelagian said, what Charles Finney says, because he's a Pelagian, what they said is we didn't get anything from Adam except a bad example don't follow his example you'll be fine well correspondingly we don't get anything from Jesus except a good example follow Jesus' good example and you can save yourself that's Pelagianism friends that's what Finney taught I don't want to hear any more about Finney being a great man who is slightly misguided he was a heretic this is what Pelagians teach you get from Adam a bad example you get from Jesus a good example that's the governmental view of the atonement by the way which he held okay Calvin saw it immediately all you're going to get from Jesus then is an example if all you got from Adam was an example why because Paul links the two of them here. What you got from Adam, so in the same manner you get from Jesus. Okay? And exemplar are not the cause of righteousness. Besides, we may easily conclude that he speaks not here of actual sin, for if everyone himself, for himself contracted guilt, why did Paul form a comparison between Adam and Christ? It follows that our innate and hereditary depravity is what is here referred to. Well, you can re- read Calvin's comments on the final verse there if you'd like. We're out of time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the time we've had to study tonight, to learn, to to just grasp uh, the perfection of Scripture and the perfection of, of Your Word. We thank You for Calvin's comments on it, and we praise You for it. And Lord, I pray that You would um, just take these truths and press them to our hearts, especially those that we have learned directly from Romans. Amen. By the way, before I let you go, do you not notice a difference between Paul's writings and Calvin's? I think Paul's a lot clearer than Calvin. I think Paul did lucid brevity better than Calvin. In other words, when I read Romans, I know immediately what it's saying. When I read Calvin, I have to work and think a lot about what in the world he's talking about. So hence to say even the best teaching isn't as good as the scripture itself. Now we need good teaching, but the scripture's the best teacher of all. That's it. You're dismissed.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org.